This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chekris, London, UK. The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow by Jerome K. Jerome. Section 9. On Being Shy. All great literary men are shy. I am myself, though I am told it is hardly noticeable. I am glad it is not. It used to be extremely prominent at one time, and was the cause of much misery to myself, and discomfort to everyone about me. My lady friends especially complained most bitterly about it. A shy man's lot is not a happy one. The men dislike him, the women despise him, and he dislikes and despises himself. Use brings him no relief, and there is no cure for him except time, though I once came across a delicious recipe for overcoming the misfortune. It appeared among the Answers to Correspondents in a small weekly journal, and ran as follows. I have never forgotten it. Adopt an easy and pleasing manner, especially toward ladies. Poor wretch! I can imagine the grin with which he must have read that advice. Adopt an easy and pleasing manner, especially toward ladies, forsooth! Don't you adopt anything of the kind, my dear young shy friend. Your attempt to put on any other disposition than your own will infallibly result in your becoming ridiculously gushing and offensively familiar. Be your own natural self, and then you will only be thought to be surly and stupid. The shy man does have some slight revenge upon society for the torture it inflicts upon him. He is able, to a certain extent, to communicate his misery. He frightens other people as much as they frighten him. He acts like a damper upon the whole room, and the most jovial spirits become in his presence depressed and nervous. This is a good deal brought about by misunderstanding. Many people mistake the shy man's timidity for overbearing arrogance, and are awed and insulted by it. His awkwardness is resented as insolent carelessness, and when, terror-stricken at the first word addressed to him, the blood rushes to his head, and the power of speech completely fails him, he is regarded as an awful example of the evil effects of giving way to passion. But, indeed, to be misunderstood is the shy man's fate on every occasion, and whatever impression he endeavours to create, he is sure to convey its opposite— when he makes a joke, it is looked upon as a pretended relation of fact, and his want of veracity much condemned. His sarcasm is accepted as his literal opinion, and gains for him the reputation of being an ass, while if, on the other hand, wishing to ingratiate himself, he ventures upon a little bit of flattery, it is taken for satire, and he is hated ever afterward. These and the rest of a shy man's troubles are always very amusing to other people, and have afforded material for comic writing from time immemorial. But if we look a little deeper, we shall find there is a pathetic, one might almost say a tragic, side to the picture. A shy man means a lonely man, 
a man cut off from all companionship, all sociability. He moves about the world, but does not mix with it. Between him and his fellow men there runs ever an impassable barrier, a strong invisible wall that, trying in vain to scale, he but bruises himself against. He sees the pleasant faces, and hears the pleasant voices on the other side, but he cannot stretch his hand across to grasp another hand. He stands watching the merry groups, and he longs to speak and to claim kindred with them. But they pass him by, chatting gaily to one another, and he cannot stay them. He tries to reach them, but his prison walls move with him and hem him in on every side. In the busy street, in the crowded room, in the grind of work, in the whirl of pleasure, amid the many or amid the few, wherever men congregate together, wherever the music of human speech is heard and human thought is flashed from human eyes, there, shunned and solitary, the shy man, like a leper, stands apart. His soul is full of love and longing, but the world knows it not. The iron mask of shyness is riveted before his face, and the man beneath is never seen. Genial words and hearty greetings are ever rising to his lips, but they die away in unheard whispers behind the steel clamps. His heart aches for the weary brother, but his sympathy is dumb. Contempt and indignation against wrong choke up his throat, and, finding no safety valve whence in passionate utterance they may burst forth, they only turn in again and harm him. All the hate and scorn and love of a deep nature, such as the shy man is ever cursed by, fester and corrupt within, instead of spending themselves abroad, and sour him into a misanthrope and cynic. Yes, shy men, like ugly women, have a bad time of it in this world. To go through which with any comfort needs the hide of a rhinoceros. Thick skin is indeed our moral clothes, and without it we are not fit to be seen about in civilized society. A poor gasping, blushing creature, with trembling knees and twitching hands, is a painful sight to everyone, and if it cannot cure itself, the sooner it goes and hangs itself, the better. The disease can be cured. For the comfort of the shy, I can assure them of that from personal experience. I do not like speaking about myself, as may have been noticed, but in the cause of humanity I on this occasion will do so, and will confess that at one time I was, as the young man in the Bab Ballad says, the shyest of the shy, and whenever I was introduced to any pretty maid, my knees they knocked together just as if I was afraid. Now I would, nay have, on this very day before yesterday I did the deed, alone and entirely by myself, as the schoolboy said in translating the Bellum Gallicum, did I beard a railway refreshment room young lady in her own lair. I rebuked her in terms of mingled bitterness and sorrow for her callousness and want of condescension. I insisted, courteously but firmly, on being accorded that deference and attention that was the right of the travelling Briton, and at the end I looked her full in the face. Need I say more? 
true, immediately after doing so I left the room with what may possibly have appeared to be precipitation, and without waiting for any refreshment. But that was because I had changed my mind, not because I was frightened, you understand. One consolation that shy folk can take unto themselves is that shyness is certainly no sign of stupidity. It is easy enough for bull-headed clowns to sneer at nerves, but the highest natures are not necessarily those containing the greatest amount of moral brass. The horse is not an inferior animal to the cock-sparrow, nor the deer of the forest to the pig. Shyness simply means extreme sensibility, and has nothing whatever to do with self-consciousness or with conceit, though its relationship to both is continually insisted upon by the Paul Parrot school of philosophy. Conceit, indeed, is the quickest cure for it. When it once begins to dawn upon you that you are a good deal cleverer than anyone else in this world, bashfulness becomes shocked and leaves you. When you can look round a room full of people and think that each one is a mere child in intellect compared with yourself, you feel no more shy of them than you would of a select company of magpies or orangutans. Conceit is the finest armour that a man can wear. Upon its smooth impenetrable surface the puny dagger thrusts of spite and envy glance harmlessly aside. Without that breastplate the sword of talent cannot force its way through the battle of life, for blows have to be borne as well as dealt. I do not, of course, speak of the conceit that displays itself in an elevated nose and a falsetto voice. That is not real conceit. That is only playing at being conceited. Like children play at being kings and queens, and go strutting about with feathers and long trains. Genuine conceit does not make a man objectionable. On the contrary, it tends to make him genial, kind-hearted, and simple. He has no need of affectation, he is far too well satisfied with his own character, and his pride is too deep-seated to appear at all on the outside. Careless alike of praise or blame, he can afford to be truthful. Too far, in fancy, above the rest of mankind to trouble about their petty distinctions, he is equally at home with duke or costermonger. And valuing no one's standard but his own, he is never tempted to practice that miserable pretense that less self-reliant people offer up as an hourly sacrifice to the god of their neighbour's opinion. The shy man, on the other hand, is humble, modest of his own judgment and over-anxious concerning that of others. But this, in the case of a young man, is surely right enough. His character is unformed. It is slowly evolving itself out of a chaos of doubt and disbelief. Before the growing insight and experience, the diffidence recedes. A man rarely carries his shyness past the hobbledehoy period. Even if his own inward strength does not throw it off, the rubbings of the world generally smooth it down. You scarcely ever meet a really shy man, except in novels or on the stage, where, by the by, he is much admired, especially by the women. There, in that supernatural land, he appears as a fair-haired and saint-like young man, 
fair hair and goodness always go together on the stage. No respectable audience would believe in one without the other. I knew an actor who mislaid his wig once, and had to rush on to play the hero in his own hair, which was jet black, and the gallery howled at all his noble sentiments, under the impression that he was the villain. He, the shy young man, loves the heroine, oh, so devotedly, but only in asides, for he dare not tell her of it. And he is so noble and unselfish, and speaks in such a low voice, and is so good to his mother, and the bad people in the play, they laugh at him and jeer at him, but he takes it all so gently, and in the end it transpires that he is such a clever man, though nobody knew it, and then the heroine tells him she loves him, and he is so surprised, and oh, so happy, and everybody loves him, and asks him to forgive them, which he does in a few well-chosen and sarcastic words, and blesses them. And he seems to have generally such a good time of it, that all the young fellows who are not shy— long to be shy. But the really shy man knows better. He knows that it is not quite so pleasant in reality. He is not quite so interesting there as in the fiction. He is a little more clumsy and stupid, and a little less devoted and gentle. And his hair is much darker, which, taken altogether, considerably alters the aspect of the case. The point where he does resemble his ideal is in his faithfulness. I am fully prepared to allow the shy young man that virtue. He is constant in his love. But the reason is not far to seek. The fact is, it exhausts all his stock of courage to look one woman in the face, and it would be simply impossible for him to go through the ordeal with a second. He stands in far too much dread of the whole female sex to want to go gadding about with many of them. One is quite enough for him. Now, it is different with a young man who is not shy. He has temptations which his bashful brother never encounters. He looks around and everywhere sees roguish eyes and laughing lips. What more natural than that amid so many roguish eyes and laughing lips he should become confused, and, forgetting for the moment which particular pair of roguish eyes and laughing lips it is that he belongs to, go off making love to the wrong set? The shy man, who never looks at anything but his own boots, sees not, and is not tempted. Happy shy man! Not but what the shy man himself would much rather not be happy in that way. He longs to go it with the others, and curses himself every day for not being able to. He will now and again, screwing up his courage by a tremendous effort, plunge into roguishness but it is always a terrible fiasco, and after one or two feeble flounders he crawls out again, limp and pitiable. I say pitiable, though I am afraid he never is pitied. There are certain misfortunes which, while inflicting a vast amount of suffering upon their victims, gain for them no sympathy. Losing an umbrella, falling in love, toothache, black eyes, and having your hat sat upon may be mentioned as a few examples, but the chief of them all is shyness. The shy man is regarded as an animate joke. His tortures are the sport of the drawing-room arena, and are pointed out and discussed with much gusto.
"'Look!' cry his tittering audience to each other. "'He's blushing!' "'Just watch his legs,' says one. "'Do you notice how he is sitting?' adds another. "'Right on the edge of the chair.' "'Seems to have plenty of colour," sneers a military-looking gentleman. "'Pity he's got so many hands,' murmurs an elderly lady, with her own calmly folded on her lap. "'They quite confuse him.' "'A yard or two off his feet wouldn't be a disadvantage,' chimes in the comic man, "'especially as he seems so anxious to hide them.' And then another suggests that, with such a voice, he ought to have been a sea-captain. Some draw attention to the desperate way in which he is grasping his hat. Some comment upon his limited powers of conversation. Others remark upon the troublesome nature of his cough, and so on, until his peculiarities and the company are both thoroughly exhausted. His friends and relations make matters still more unpleasant for the poor boy. Friends and relations are privileged to be more disagreeable than other people. Not content with making fun of him among themselves, they insist on his seeing the joke. They mimic and caricature him for his own edification. One, pretending to imitate him, goes outside and comes in again in a ludicrously nervous manner, explaining to him afterward that that is the way he, meaning the shy fellow, walks into a room. Or, turning to him with, "'This is the way you shake hands,' proceeds to go through a comic pantomime with the rest of the room, taking hold of everyone's hand as if it were a hot plate, and flabbily dropping it again. And then they ask him why he blushes, and why he stammers, and why he always speaks in an almost inaudible tone, as if they thought he did it on purpose. Then one of them, sticking out his chest and strutting about the room like a pouter pigeon, suggests quite seriously that that is the style he should adopt. The old man slaps him on the back and says, "'Be bold, my boy. Don't be afraid of any one.' The mother says, "'Never do anything that you need be ashamed of, Algernon, and then you never need be ashamed of anything you do.' And, beaming mildly at him, seems surprised at the clearness of her own logic. The boys tell him that he's worse than a girl, and the girls repudiate the implied slur upon their sex by indignantly exclaiming that they are sure no girl would be half as bad. They are quite right. No girl would be. There is no such thing as a shy woman, or, at all events, I have never come across one, and until I do I shall not believe in them. I know that the generally accepted belief is quite the reverse— all women are supposed to be like timid, startled fawns, blushing and casting down their gentle eyes when looked at, and running away when spoken to, while we men are supposed to be a bold and rollicky lot, and the poor dear little women admire us for it, but are terribly afraid of us. It is a pretty theory, but, like most generally accepted theories, mere nonsense." The girl of twelve is self-contained and as cool as the proverbial cucumber, while her brother of twenty stammers and stutters by her side. A woman will enter a concert room late, interrupt the performance, and disturb the whole audience without moving a hair, 
while her husband follows her a crushed heap of apologizing misery. The superior nerve of women in all matters connected with love, from the casting of the first sheep's eye down to the end of the honeymoon, is too well acknowledged to need comment. Nor is the example a fair one to cite in the present instance, the positions not being equally balanced. Love is woman's business, and in business we all lay aside our natural weaknesses. The shyest man I ever knew was a photographic tout. End of section 9This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris, London, UK. The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow by Jerome K. Jerome. Section 10 on Babies. Oh, yes, I do. I know a lot about em. I was one myself once, though not long. Not so long as my clothes. They were very long, I recollect, and always in my way when I wanted to kick. Why do babies have such yards of unnecessary clothing? It is not a riddle. I really want to know. I never could understand it. Is it that the parents are ashamed of the size of the child, and wish to make believe that it is longer than it actually is. I asked a nurse once why it was. She said, "'Law, sir, they always have long clothes, bless their little hearts.' And when I explained that her answer, although doing credit to her feelings, hardly disposed of my difficulty, she replied, "'Law, sir, you wouldn't have em in short clothes, poor little dears?' and she said it in a tone that seemed to imply I had suggested some unmanly outrage. Since then I have felt shy at making inquiries on the subject, and the reason, if reason there be, is still a mystery to me. But indeed, putting them in any clothes at all seems absurd to my mind. Goodness knows there is enough of dressing and undressing to be gone through in life without beginning it before we need and one would think that people who live in bed might at all events be spared the torture. Why wake the poor little wretches up in the morning to take one lot of clothes off, fix another lot on, and put them to bed again, and then at night haul them out once more merely to change everything back? And when all is done, what difference is there, I should like to know, between a baby's nightshirt and the thing it wears in the daytime? Very likely, however, I am only making myself ridiculous. I often do, so I am informed, and I will therefore say no more upon this matter of clothes, except only that it would be of great convenience if some fashion were adopted enabling you to tell a boy from a girl. At present it is most awkward. Neither hair, dress, nor conversation affords the slightest clue, and you are left to guess. By some mysterious law of nature, you invariably guess wrong, and are thereupon regarded by all the relatives and friends as a mixture of fool and knave, the enormity of alluding to a male babe as she 
being only equalled by the atrocity of referring to a female infant as he. Whichever sex the particular child in question happens not to belong to is considered as beneath contempt, and any mention of it is taken as a personal insult to the family. And as you value your fair name, do not attempt to get out of the difficulty by talking of it. There are various methods by which you may achieve ignominy and shame. By murdering a large and respected family in cold blood, and afterward depositing their bodies in the water company's reservoir, you will gain much unpopularity in the neighborhood of your crime. And even robbing a church will get you cordially disliked, especially by the vicar. But if you desire to drain to the dregs the fullest cup of scorn and hatred that a fellow human creature can pour out for you, let a young mother hear you call dear baby it. Your best plan is to address the article as little angel. The noun angel being of common gender suits the case admirably, and the epithet is sure of being favourably received. Pet or beauty, are useful for variety's sake, but angel is the term that brings you the greatest credit for sense and good feeling. The word should be preceded by a short giggle, and accompanied by as much smile as possible. And whatever you do, don't forget to say that the child has got its father's nose. This fetches the parents, if I may be allowed a vulgarism, more than anything. They will pretend to laugh at the idea at first, and will say, Oh, nonsense! You must then get excited and insist that it is a fact. You need have no conscientious scruples on the subject, because the thing's nose really does resemble its father's, at all events quite as much as it does anything else in nature, being as it is a mere smudge. Do not despise these hints, my friends. There may come a time when, with Mamma on one side and Grandmamma on the other, a group of admiring young ladies, not admiring you, though, behind, and a bald-headed dab of humanity in front, you will be extremely thankful for some idea of what to say. A man, an unmarried man, that is, is never seen to such disadvantage as when undergoing the ordeal of seeing baby. A cold shudder runs down his back at the bare proposal, and the sickly smile with which he says how delighted he shall be ought surely to move even a mother's heart, unless, as I am inclined to believe, the whole proceeding is a mere device adopted by wives to discourage the visits of bachelor friends. It is a cruel trick, though, whatever its excuse may be. The bell is rung, and somebody sent to tell nurse to bring baby down. This is the signal for all the females present to commence talking baby, during which time you are left to your own sad thoughts and the speculations upon the practicability of suddenly recollecting an important engagement and the likelihood of your being believed if you do. Just when you have concocted an absurdly implausible tale about a man outside, the door opens, and a tall, severe-looking woman enters, 
carrying what at first sight appears to be a particularly skinny bolster, with the feathers all at one end. Instinct, however, tells you that this is the baby, and you rise with a miserable attempt at appearing eager. When the first gush of feminine enthusiasm with which the object in question is received has died out, and the number of ladies talking at once has been reduced to the ordinary four or five, the circle of fluttering petticoats divides, and room is made for you to step forward. This you do with much the same air that you would walk into the dock at Bow Street, and then, feeling unutterably miserable, you stand solemnly staring at the child. There is dead silence, and you know that everyone is waiting for you to speak. You try to think of something to say, but find to your horror that your reasoning faculties have left you. It is a moment of despair, and your evil genius, seizing the opportunity, suggests to you some of the most idiotic remarks that it is possible for a human being to perpetrate. Glancing round with an imbecile smile, you sniggeringly observe that uh, it hasn't got much hair, has it? Nobody answers you for a minute, but at last the stately nurse says with much gravity, "'It is not customary for children five weeks old to have long hair.' Another silence follows this, and you feel you are being given a second chance, which you avail yourself of by inquiring if it can walk yet, or what they feed it on. By this time you have got to be regarded as not quite right in your head, and pity is the only thing felt for you. The nurse, however, is determined that, insane or not, there shall be no shirking, and that you shall go through your task to the end. In the tones of a high priestess directing some religious mystery, she says, holding the bundle toward you, "'Take her in your arms, sir.' You are too crushed to offer any resistance, and so meekly accept the burden. Put your arm more down her middle, sir, says the high priestess, and then all step back and watch you intently, as though you were going to do a trick with it. What to do, you know no more than you did what to say. It is certain something must be done, and the only thing that occurs to you is to heave the unhappy infant up and down to the accompaniment of oopsie-daisy, or some remark of equal intelligence. "'I wouldn't jig her, sir, if I were you,' says the nurse. "'A very little upsets her.' You promptly decide not to jig her, and sincerely hope that you have not gone too far already. At this point, the child itself who has hitherto been regarding you with an expression of mingled horror and disgust, puts an end to the nonsense by beginning to yell at the top of its voice, at which the priestess rushes forward and snatches it from you with, There, 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 what didums do to ums? How very extraordinary, you say pleasantly. Whatever made it go off like that? Oh, why, you must have done something to her says the mother indignantly. The child wouldn't scream like that for nothing. It is evident they think you have been running pins into it. The brat is calmed at last, 
and would no doubt remain quiet enough only some mischievous busybody points you out again with who's this baby and the intelligent child recognizing you howls louder than ever whereupon some fat old lady remarks that it's strange how children take a dislike to any one oh they know replies another mysteriously it's a wonderful thing adds a third and then everybody looks sideways at you convinced you are a scoundrel of the blackest dye and they glory in the beautiful idea that your true character unguessed by your fellow men has been discovered by the untaught instinct of a little child babies though with all their crimes and errors are not without their use not without use surely when they fill an empty heart not without use when at their call sunbeams of love break through care-clouded faces not without use when their little fingers press wrinkles into smiles odd little people they are the unconscious comedians of the world's great stage they supply the humour in life's all-too-heavy drama each one a small but determined opposition to the order of things in general is forever doing the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong place and in the wrong way the nurse girl who sent jenny to see what tommy and totty were doing and tell em they mustn't knew infantile nature give an average baby a fair chance and if it doesn't do something it oughtn't to a doctor should be called in at once they have a genius for doing the most ridiculous things and they do them in a grave stoical manner that is irresistible the business-like air with which two of them will join hands and proceed due east at a breakneck toddle while an excitable big sister is roaring for them to follow her in a westerly direction is most amusing except perhaps for the big sister they walk round a soldier staring at his legs with the greatest curiosity and poke him to see if he is real they stoutly maintain against all argument and much to the discomfort of the victim that the bashful young man at the end of the bus is dada a crowded street corner suggests itself to their minds as a favourable spot for the discussion of family affairs at a shrill treble when in the middle of crossing the road they are seized with a sudden impulse to dance and the doorstep of a busy shop is the place they always select for sitting down and taking off their shoes when at home they find the biggest walking stick in the house or an umbrella open preferred of much assistance in getting upstairs they discover that they love mary ann at the precise moment when that faithful domestic is blackleading the stove and nothing will relieve their feelings but to embrace her then and there with regard to food their favorite dishes are coke and cat's meat they nurse pussy upside down and they show their affection for the dog by pulling his tail they are a deal of trouble and they make a place untidy and they cost a lot of money to keep but still you would not have the house without them it would not be home without their noisy tongues and their mischief-making hands 
Would not the rooms seem silent without their pattering feet? And might not you stray apart if no prattling voices called you together? It should be so. And yet I have sometimes thought the tiny hand seemed as a wedge dividing. It is a bearish task to quarrel with that purest of all human affections, that perfecting touch to a woman's life, a mother's love. It is a holy love that we coarser-fibred men can hardly understand, and I would not be deemed to lack reverence for it when I say that surely it need not swallow up all other affection. The baby need not take your whole heart, like the rich man who walled up the desert well, is there not another thirsty traveller standing by? In your desire to be a good mother, do not forget to be a good wife. No need for all the thought and care to be only for one. Do not, whenever poor Edwin wants you to come out, answer indignantly, What, and leave baby? Do not spend all your evenings upstairs. And do not confine your conversation exclusively to whooping cough and measles. My dear little woman, the child is not going to die every time it sneezes. The house is not bound to get burned down and the nurse run away with a soldier every time you go outside the front door. Nor the cat sure to come and sit on the precious child's chest the moment you leave the bedside. You worry yourself a good deal too much about that solitary chick and you worry everybody else too. Try and think of your other duties, and your pretty face will not be always puckered into wrinkles, and there will be cheerfulness in the parlour as well as in the nursery. Think of your big baby a little. Dance him about a bit. Call him pretty names. Laugh at him now and then. It is only the first baby that takes up the whole of a woman's time, Five or six do not require nearly so much attention as one. But before then the mischief has been done. A house where there seems no room for him, and a wife too busy to think of him, have lost their hold on that so unreasonable husband of yours, and he has learned to look elsewhere for comfort and companionship. But there, there, there. I shall get myself the character of a baby-hater, if I talk any more in this strain. And heaven knows I am not one. Who could be? To look into the little innocent faces clustered in timid helplessness round those great gates that open down into the world. The world. The small round world. What a vast, mysterious place it must seem to baby eyes. What a trackless continent the back garden appears. What marvellous explorations they make in the cellar under the stairs. With what awe they gaze down the long street, wondering like us bigger babies when we gaze up at the stars, where it all ends. And down that longest street of all, that long dim street of life that stretches out before them, what grave old-fashioned looks they seem to cast. What pitiful frightened looks sometimes. I saw a little mite sitting on a doorstep in a Soho slum one night, and I shall never forget the look that the gas lamp showed me on its wizen face. A look of dull despair, as if from the squalid court 
the vista of its own squalid life had risen ghost-like and struck its heart dead with horror. Poor little feet, just commencing the stony journey. We old travellers far down the road can only pause to wave a hand to you. You come out of the dark mist, and we, looking back, see you, so tiny in the distance, standing on the brow of the hill, your arms stretched out toward us. God speed you. We would stay and take your little hand in ours, but the murmur of the great sea is in our ears, and we may not linger. We must hasten down, for the shadowy ships are waiting to spread their sable sails. End of section 10This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chekris, London, UK. The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow by Jerome K. Jerome. Section 11. On Eating and Drinking. I always was fond of eating and drinking, even as a child, especially eating, in those early days. I had an appetite then, also a digestion. I remember a dull-eyed, livid-complexioned gentleman coming to dine at our house once. He watched me eating for about five minutes, quite fascinated seemingly, and then he turned to my father with— "'Does your boy ever suffer from dyspepsia?' "'I never heard him complain of anything of that kind,' replied my father. "'Do you ever suffer from dyspepsia, Collywobbles?' "'They called me Collywobbles, but it was not my real name.' "'No, Pa,' I answered. "'After which I added, "'What is dyspepsia, Pa?' My livid-complexioned friend regarded me with a look of mingled amazement and envy. Then, in a tone of infinite pity, he slowly said, "'You will know, some day.' My poor dear mother used to say she liked to see me eat, and it has always been a pleasant reflection to me since that I must have given her much gratification in that direction." A growing, healthy lad, taking plenty of exercise, and careful to restrain himself from indulging in too much study, can generally satisfy the most exacting expectations as regards his feeding powers. It is amusing to see boys eat, when you have not got to pay for it. Their idea of a square meal is a pound and a half of roast beef with five or six good-sized potatoes, soapy ones preferred as being more substantial, plenty of greens, and four thick slices of Yorkshire pudding, followed by a couple of currant dumplings, a few green apples, a penneth of nuts, half a dozen jumbles, and a bottle of ginger beer. After that they play at horses. How they must despise us men— who require to sit quiet for a couple of hours after dining off a spoonful of clear soup and the wing of a chicken. But the boys have not all the advantages on their side. 
A boy never enjoys the luxury of being satisfied. A boy never feels full. He can never stretch out his legs, put his hands behind his head, and, closing his eyes, sink into the ethereal blissfulness that encompasses the well-dined man. A dinner makes no difference whatever to a boy. To a man it is as a good fairy's potion, and after it the world appears a brighter and a better place. A man who has dined satisfactorily experiences a yearning love toward all his fellow creatures. He strokes the cat quite gently, and calls it poor pussy, in tones full of the tenderest emotion. He sympathizes with the members of the German band outside, and wonders if they are cold. And for the moment he does not even hate his wife's relations. A good dinner brings out all the softer side of a man. Under its genial influence, the gloomy and morose become jovial and chatty. Sour, starchy individuals, who all the rest of the day go about looking as if they lived on vinegar and Epsom salts, break out into wreathed smiles after dinner, and exhibit a tendency to pat small children on the head, and to talk to them, vaguely, about sixpences. Serious men thaw, and become mildly cheerful, and snobbish young men of the heavy moustache type forget to make themselves objectionable. I always feel sentimental myself after dinner. It is the only time when I can properly appreciate love stories. Then, when the hero clasps her to his heart in one last wild embrace, and stifles a sob, I feel as sad as though I had dealt at whist and turned up only a deuce and when the heroine dies in the end, I weep. If I read the same tale early in the morning, I should sneer at it. Digestion, or rather indigestion, has a marvellous effect upon the heart. If I want to write anything very pathetic, I mean, if I want to try to write anything very pathetic, I eat a large plateful of hot buttered muffins about an hour beforehand, and then by the time I sit down to my work, a feeling of unutterable melancholy has come over me. I picture heartbroken lovers parting forever at lonely wayside stiles, while the sad twilight deepens around them, and only the tinkling of a distant sheep-bell breaks the sorrow-laden silence. Old men sit and gaze at withered flowers till their sight is dimmed by the mist of tears. Little dainty maidens wait and watch at open casements, but he cometh not. And the heavy years roll by, and the sunny gold tresses wear white and thin. The babies that they dandled have become grown men and women with podgy torments of their own, and the playmates that they laughed with are lying very silent under the waving grass. But still they wait and watch, till the dark shadows of the unknown night steal up and gather round them, and the world with its childish troubles fades from their aching eyes. I see pale corpses tossed on white foamed waves, and deathbeds stained with bitter tears, and graves in trackless deserts. I hear the wild wailing of women, 
the low moaning of little children, the dry sobbing of strong men. It's all the muffins. I could not conjure up one melancholy fancy upon a mutton-chop and a glass of champagne. A full stomach is a great aid to poetry, and, indeed, no sentiment of any kind can stand upon an empty one. We have not time or inclination to indulge in fanciful troubles until we have got rid of our real misfortunes. We do not sigh over dead dicky-birds with the bailiff in the house, and when we do not know where on earth to get our next shilling from, we do not worry as to whether our mistress's smiles are cold or hot or lukewarm or anything else about them. Foolish people, when I say foolish people in this contemptuous way, I mean people who entertain different opinions to mine. If there is one person I do despise more than another, it is the man who does not think exactly the same on all topics as I do. Foolish people, I say then, who have never experienced much of either, will tell you that mental distress is far more agonizing than bodily. Romantic and touching theory, so comforting to the lovesick young sprig who looks down patronizingly at some poor devil with a white starved face, and thinks to himself, Ah, how happy you are compared with me! so soothing to fat old gentlemen who cackle about the superiority of poverty over riches. But it is all nonsense, all cant. An aching head soon makes one forget an aching heart. A broken finger will drive away all recollections of an empty chair. And when a man feels really hungry, he does not feel anything else. We sleek, well-fed folk can hardly realize what feeling hungry is like. We know what it is to have no appetite, and not to care for the dainty victuals placed before us, but we do not understand what it means to sicken for food, to die for bread while others waste it, to gaze with famished eyes upon coarse fare steaming behind dingy windows, longing for a penneth of pea-pudding, and not having the penny to buy it, to feel that a crust would be delicious, and that a bone would be a banquet. Hunger is a luxury to us, a piquant, flavour-giving source. It is well worth while to get hungry and thirsty, merely to discover how much gratification can be obtained from eating and drinking. If you wish to thoroughly enjoy your dinner, Take a thirty-mile country walk after breakfast, and don't touch anything till you get back. How your eyes will glisten at the sight of the white tablecloth and steaming dishes then, and with what a sigh of content you will put down the empty beer tankard and take up your knife and fork, and how comfortable you feel afterward as you push back your chair, light a cigar, and beam round upon everybody. Make sure, however, when adopting this plan, that the good dinner is really to be had at the end, or the disappointment is trying. I remember once a friend and I, dear old Joe it was, ah, how we lose one another in life's mist. It must be eight years since I last saw Joe Taboys. How pleasant it would be to meet his jovial face again, to clasp his strong hand, and to hear his cheery laugh once more. 
he owes me fourteen shillings, too. Well, we were on a holiday together, and one morning we had breakfast early and started for a tremendous long walk. We had ordered a duck for dinner overnight. We said, get a big one, because we shall come home awfully hungry. And as we were going out, our landlady came up in great spirits. She said, I have got you gentlemen a duck, if you like. If you get through that, you'll do well. And she held up a bird about the size of a doormat. We chuckled at the sight and said we would try. We said it with self-conscious pride, like men who know their own power. Then we started. We lost our way, of course. I always do in the country, and it makes me so wild, because it is no use asking direction of any of the people you meet. One might as well inquire of a lodging-house slavey the way to make beds, as expect a country bumpkin to know the road to the next village. You have to shout the question about three times before the sound of your voice penetrates his skull. At the third time, he slowly raises his head and stares blankly at you. You yell it at him then for a fourth time, and he repeats it after you. He ponders while you count a couple of hundred, after which, speaking at the rate of three words a minute, he fancies you couldn't do better than... Here he catches sight of another idiot coming down the road, and bawls out to him the particulars, requesting his advice. The two then argue the case for a quarter of an hour or so, and finally agree that you had better go straight down the lane, round to the right and cross by the third stile, and keep to the left by old Jimmy Milcher's cowshed, and across the seven-acre field, and through the gate by Squire Grubbin's haystack, keeping the bridle-path for a while till you come opposite the hill where the windmill used to be, but it's gone now, and round to the right, leaving Stiggins' plantation behind you. And you say, thank you, and go away with a splitting headache, but without the faintest notion of your way, the only clear idea you have on the subject being that somewhere or other there is a stile which has to be got over, and at the next turn you come upon four stiles, all leading in different directions. We had undergone this ordeal two or three times. We had tramped over fields, we had waded through brooks and scrambled over hedges and walls. We had had a row as to whose fault it was that we had first lost our way. We had got thoroughly disagreeable, footsore and weary. But throughout it all, the hope of that duck kept us up. A fairy-like vision it floated before our tired eyes and drew us onward. The thought of it was as a trumpet call to the fainting. We talked of it and cheered each other with our recollections of it. Come along, we said. The duck will be spoiled. We felt a strong temptation at one point to turn into a village inn as we passed and have a cheese and a few loaves between us. But we heroically restrained ourselves. We should enjoy the duck all the better for being famished. We fancied we smelled it when we got into the town, and did the last quarter of a mile in three minutes. We rushed upstairs and washed ourselves and changed our clothes and came down and pulled our chairs up to the table and sat and rubbed our hands while the landlady removed the covers when I seized the knife and fork 
and started to carve. It seemed to want a lot of carving. I struggled with it for about five minutes without making the slightest impression, and then Joe, who had been eating potatoes, wanted to know if it wouldn't be better for someone to do the job that understood carving. I took no notice of his foolish remark, but attacked the bird again, and so vigorously this time that the animal left the dish and took refuge in the fender. We soon had it out of that, though, and I was prepared to make another effort, but Joe was getting unpleasant. He said that if he had thought we were to have a game of blind hockey with the dinner, he would have got a bit of bread and cheese outside. I was too exhausted to argue. I laid down the knife and fork with dignity and took a side seat, and Joe went for the wretched creature. He worked away in silence for a while, and then he muttered, "'Damn the duck!' and took his coat off. We did break the thing up at length with the aid of a chisel, but it was perfectly impossible to eat it, and we had to make a dinner off the vegetables and an apple tart. We tried a mouthful of the duck, but it was like eating India rubber. It was a wicked sin to kill that drake. But there, there's no respect for old institutions in this country. I started this paper with the idea of writing about eating and drinking, but I seem to have confined my remarks entirely to eating as yet. Well, you see, drinking is one of those subjects with which it is inadvisable to appear too well acquainted. The days are gone by when it was considered manly to go to bed intoxicated every night, and a clear head and a firm hand no longer draw down upon their owner the reproach of effeminacy. On the contrary, in these sadly degenerate days, an evil-smelling breath, a blotchy face, a reeling gait, and a husky voice are regarded as the hallmarks of the cad rather than of the gentleman. Even nowadays, though, the thirstiness of mankind is something supernatural. We are forever drinking on one excuse or another. A man never feels comfortable unless he has a glass before him. We drink before meals, and with meals, and after meals. We drink when we meet a friend, also when we part from a friend. We drink when we are talking, when we are reading, and when we are thinking. We drink one another's healths, and spoil our own. We drink the Queen, and the Army, and the ladies, and everybody else that is drinkable. And I believe if the supply ran short, we should drink our mothers-in-law. By the way, we never eat anybody's health. Always drink it. Why should we not stand up now and then and eat a tart to somebody's success? To me, I confess the constant necessity of drinking under which the majority of men labour is quite unaccountable. I can understand people drinking to drown care, or to drive away maddening thoughts well enough. I can understand the ignorant masses loving to soak themselves in drink. Oh yes, it's very shocking that they should, of course. Very shocking to us who live in cosy homes, with all the graces and pleasures of life around us, that the dwellers in damp cellars and windy attics should creep from their dens of misery into the warmth and glare of the public-house bar, and seek to float for a brief space away from their dull world, 
upon a lethe stream of gin. But think, before you hold up your hands in horror at their ill-living, what life for these wretched creatures really means. Picture the squalid misery of their brutish existence, dragged on from year to year in the narrow, noisome room, where, huddled like vermin in sewers, they welter and sicken and sleep, where dirt-grimed children scream and fight, and sluttish, shrill-voiced women cuff and curse and nag, where the street outside teems with roaring filth, and the house around is a bedlam of riot and stench. Think what a sapless stick this fair flower of life must be to them, devoid of mind and soul. The horse in his stall scents the sweet hay and munches the ripe corn contentedly. The watchdog in his kennel blinks at the grateful sun, dreams of a glorious chase over the dewy fields, and wakes with a yelp of gladness to greet a caressing hand. But the clod-like life of these human logs never knows one ray of light. From the hour when they crawl from their comfortless bed to the hour when they lounge back into it again, they never live one moment of real life. Recreation, amusement, companionship, they know not the meaning of. Joy, sorrow, laughter, tears, love, friendship, longing, despair, are idle words to them. From the day when their baby eyes first look out upon their sordid world, to the day when, with an oath, they close them forever, and their bones are shoveled out of sight, they never warm to one touch of human sympathy, never thrill to a single thought, never start to a single hope. In the name of the God of mercy, let them pour the maddening liquor down their throats and feel for one brief moment that they live. Ah, we may talk sentiment as much as we like, but the stomach is the real seat of happiness in this world. The kitchen is the chief temple wherein we worship. Its roaring fire is our vestal flame, and the cook is our great high priest. He is a mighty magician, and a kindly one. He soothes away all sorrow and care, he drives forth all enmity, gladdens all love. Our God is great, and the cook is his prophet. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. End of section 11